It's good to be back with you all. There's an animated family film, a short one on YouTube, called The Reflection in Me. In it, a young girl looks into the mirror, blows her bangs out of her face, and then hangs her head and walks away with her head down. As she walks away, her reflection says, I like being you. To me, you are perfectly perfect. The girl and her reflection have a conversation in which the reflection tells her all of the wonderful things about her. And I wonder, how regularly do you stand in the mirror and say, I like being you. You're perfectly perfect. Instead, do you regularly say critical things to yourself, criticizing your looks, your feelings, what you said, what you did, thinking, I didn't do that right, I'm not good enough, I don't matter, I look terrible. What if we refused to conspire with, to comply with, that diatribe from our inner critic? What if we resisted those all too familiar lines? Right now, right here, I invite you to say quietly to yourself, I like being me. I am perfectly perfect. How does that feel to say those words to yourself? What emotions surfaced for you? What did you feel in your body in response to those statements? What were your thoughts immediately following my suggestions? No judgments, just notice what came up for you. Resistance has many meanings, among them an act or instance of resisting, like opposition to the many ridiculous and harmful bills coming out of the Tennessee legislature. Unitarian Universalists, I think, are well-versed in and even known for taking positions against or in opposition to harmful legislation, harmful treatment of people, animals, and the environment. Another meaning of resistance is the power or capacity to resist, like the body having resistance to disease, for example. The third is an imposing or impeding force. What came to mind for me was those resistance bands, if you've ever had to do physical therapy. And then the fourth is a psychological defense mechanism, which therapists are quite familiar with. When I suggested earlier that you tell yourself that you are perfectly perfect, did you experience resistance to saying that to yourself? Did you then cite reasons to yourself why you can't say it? Feeling resistance can be an indicator of exactly what is needed. That internal resistance can offer a clue into what area of um, in need of attention. Here's an example. In a chapter on the sacred Enneagram, the author illustrates the importance of contemplative practices 
of solitude, silence, and stillness to your spiritual growth and transformation. The author wrote that he began to realize that grounding our social active action in contemplative spirituality was the only way to ensure both personal and community wholeness, and that that could only happen by nurturing solitude, silence, and stillness in our practices of prayer. Though similar, solitude, silence, and stillness are slightly different. Solitude, as defined in the sacred Enneagram, is an intentional withdrawal which teaches us to be present to self, to God, and to others. Silence teaches us to listen. It helps us to listen to God and to the people in our lives who speak loving and truthful words. In our busy, on-the-go world, Stillness teaches restraint, out of which we can then discern appropriate engagement. And while it's important to cultivate all three, our type, our Enneagram type, indicates which of the three is crucial to the individual. I figured, for me, that it was either silence or solitude um, that would be most critical because I thoroughly enjoy solitude, and silence, and practice both regularly. As I read on, I learned that the most crucial for me is stillness. The need to stop the busyness, or we will be stopped by burnout or exhaustion. As I reflected, I realized the truth of this. Although vastly improved over the years, it is still quite difficult for me to remain still. My inclination is to be doing this and this and that to make sure that I get every ounce of experience out of life. And even when my body is still, my mind often is not still. What I learned is that the practice which I most resist, stillness, is the one that is most crucial to me, to my transformation. Exploring my resistance to stillness helps me to understand better how I relate to myself and to the world and to be more selective in what I do. These internal forms of resistance are less visible and perhaps more subtle than the external expressions of resistance in social and protest movements, for example. Examining your own internal resistance to something may give you insight into an area that needs your attention. For example, exploring why you might resist telling yourself you are perfectly perfect may be illuminating. Resistance may also highlight the need for a shift in philosophy. In her TED talk titled, How to Do Laundry When You Are Depressed, the therapist Casey Davis talks about the link between care tasks and mental health. Davis described her experience giving birth in 2020, losing all of her support network because of the COVID shutdown, and having her days turned into breastfeeding difficulties, 
toddler meltdowns and depression. She tells viewers that the dishes and laundry piled up and there often wasn't even a path to walk through in her home. As a result, she'd lay in bed thinking, I failed. Maybe I can't be a good mom to two kids. She posted videos online about her struggles with maintaining her home. On those videos, thousands of people commented, sharing their own stories. There were comments from people with depression, ADHD, autism, burnout, and bereavement, all struggling with these daily tasks. Davis illustrates that, the many, the, that there are so many decisions that go into basic care tasks, and that many do these tasks on autopilot. However, for millions of others, the autopilot is broken. Davis developed a philosophy based on the simple idea that cooking, cleaning, and laundry do not make you a good person or a bad person. Care tasks are morally neutral. It can feel like a moral failure, that we're lazy, irresponsible, or immature, but it's not about morality, it's about functionality. Davis states that when we liberate ourselves from the idea that we are a good person or a bad person with care tasks, we can stop thinking about the right way to do things, about the way that things should be done, and instead start thinking about what we can do with our current barriers to improve our quality of life today. Once you realize that care tasks are not moral failings, you can find solutions that work for you. Davis suggests asking yourself, what am I trying to achieve and how can I do it in my own way? Care tasks are morally neutral. That is an act of resistance. Resisting the inner critic telling you that you are a moral failure. Resisting the external messages about how your home and your life must be. And instead, embracing another way. These internal shifts in how we see ourselves and how we see the world are powerful acts of resistance. That simple shift in philosophy, resisting making judgments about morality, is transformational. There are many other acts of inner resistance to social and cultural messages that are transformational. They change how we are in the world, thus affecting how others are in the world. More than 23 years ago in 1999, I know, isn't that surprising that 1999 was 23 years ago? Sociologist Barry Glasner published his book, The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. Crime, drugs, minorities, teen moms, killer kids, mutant microbes, plane crashes, road rage, and so much more. That's the title. He explored how this culture of fear is perpetuated. This is the description to his book. 
There has never been another era in modern history, even during wartime or the Great Depression, when so many people have feared so much. Three out of four Americans say they, are, they feel more fearful today than they did 20 years ago. The culture of fear describes the high costs of living in a fear-ridden environment where realism has become rarer than doors without deadbolts. Why do, so many, why do we have so many fears these days? Are we living in exceptionally dangerous times? To watch the news, you'd certainly think so. But Glasner demonstrates that it is our perception of danger that is increased, not the actual level of risk. The culture of fear is an expose of the people and organizations that manipulate our perceptions and profit from our fears. Politicians who win elections by heightening our concerns about crime and drug use, even as rates of both are declining. Advocacy groups that raise money by exaggerating the prevalence of particular diseases. TV news magazines that monger a new scare every week to garner ratings. Glasner spells out the prices we pay for social panics, the huge sums of money that go to waste on unnecessary programs and products, as well as time and energy spent worrying about our fears. That was 1999. And I think the same could be written in 2023. At the time that book was written, it was eye-opening and truly disturbing to me. I could see how easily I had bought into some of the manufactured inflated fears over the years. Unfortunately, the amount of fear doesn't seem to have decreased since Glasner's book. Even though crime has continued to decrease, our fears of crime and programs in reaction to crime continues to increase. Fear continues to be a very powerful tool to divert attention from the real issues, to keep people from making connections with each other, and to keep us closed off and support consumerism. Fear makes us reactionary. Being afraid does not allow us to look for long-term, life-affirming, positive, realistic, compassionate solutions. Instead, fear has us reacting to situations in a knee-jerk way, finding someone to blame and something to do about it right now. As suggested in the book, Now and historically, presidential elections are an excellent example of the use of fear. For example, in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, there were many who identified as Republican who were not in favor of Trump. However, they were so over-identified with their fear of Clinton becoming president that they didn't pay attention to what was happening in their own Party. Trump is an exceptionally skilled fearmonger. He built his base by tapping into fears, overinflating them, manufacturing fears, and giving his base a place to focus all of their fears, someone to blame. Those liberals. 
and it worked. Fear also gave him vast amounts of airtime, free, on all news stations, newspapers, magazines, and talk shows. Fear works. In April, the first 2024 presidential election commercials aired. Diana Butler Bass noted that both Democratic and Republican commercials begin with stirring fear. As Butler puts it, fear is a powerful motivator in politics. The Republican commercial is transparent in their use of fear. They imagine for the audience what a world in 2024 with Biden as president would look like. Taking all of the fears of the right and depicting the worst fears coming true. So there was all sorts of images that were um, fear-provoking. And the ad was also the first ever created entirely by artificial intelligence, meaning that the images were entirely created by an image generator. They weren't real pictures. Manufactured fear. Whether we're aware of it or not, we're all affected in some way by this culture of fear. We're preyed upon, offered something to fear, and thus inducing a fear response. And then we're given a solution. Afraid of aging? Buy this lotion. Take this pill. Afraid that you're not relevant? Buy this expensive car. People will notice you. Afraid of uh, crime? Install security cameras. Hire a bodyguard. Buy a gun. In 2016, all of your fears will be resolved when you elect this one strong man. We are constantly bombarded with fear. Messages that we are not enough, that we are not doing enough, and that we need to do more and more. What if we stopped buying into or accepting those social and cultural messages that we're not enough? What if we resisted the manufacturing of fear? There are three lies we tell ourselves, according to the theologian Henry Nouwen. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say or think about me. Growing in the understanding of ourselves as authentic, wholehearted spiritual beings is how we resist those lies. Building, strengthening our inner resources allows us to connect with others, to resist the inner critic and the messages of less than. Fear is reactive. Silence, solitude, and stillness are antidotes to reactivity. How would we be in the world? What would the world look like if we resisted the damaging messages that encourage fear? Zach Norris of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, Restore Oakland, and Justice for Families argues in his book, Defund Fear, Safety Without Policing Prisons and Punishment, 
writes that we need to move from a fear-based model to a care-based model, a shift from fear to care. He illustrates that a framework of fear is based on deprivation, suspicion, punishment, and isolation. A framework of care, on the other hand, is based on resources rather than deprivation, relationships rather than suspicion, and participation rather than isolation, and accountability rather than punishment. Although his book addressed the criminal legal system, the qualities of a framework of care, resources, relationship, accountability, and participation have widespread applicability for resisting a culture of fear. As in resisting fear through applying an impeding force. Participation. Building relationships and connections. Offering resources. Holding ourselves and others accountable. These are external as well as internal acts of resistance. Building our muscles of resistance through cultivating silence, solitude, and stillness. From this contemplative place, we can choose how and who we want to be in the world. A very different space to begin than starting from a reactive fear base. What if this week you performed your own inner acts of resistance? If you took a moment with the contemplative practice that is most uncomfortable for you, whether that's silence, stillness, or solitude. Perhaps you might counter the messages of less than by repeating the words from the reflection in the mirror. I like being you. You are perfectly perfect. You have wonderful eyes. They sparkle like stars on the darkest of nights. You have a marvelous voice. You sound as joyous as a songbird whistling in the trees. Your smile is as bright and cheerful as the sun in the sky. And you are quite smart, as brilliant as a rocket scientist. I like that you are friendly. You are as peaceful as a butterfly. And you have a lot of courage. You are as brave as a lion. You are a fantastic dancer, as graceful as a dolphin gliding through the sea. And you have a terrific laugh. Your chuckle fills the air with bubbly joy. But most of all, I like your heart. Your kindness is as beautiful as a rainbow. To me, you are perfectly perfect. I like being you. I want to be you forever. May it be so.